We welcome you to a very special edition of Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. Uh, we've been anticipating this for a while. Yes, we have. Um, we are here to bring you a very special interview with show writer, um, story editor, co-producer. A lot of titles. Yeah. Uh, Ethley and Vare. Vare. Is, yeah. 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 So that's something that we learned. It's not Ethley and Var. Oops. Yeah. That's an egg on both of our face that yep. we can now wipe off yep. and, and now have the correct pronunciation going forward. Right. Which so we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> so now that we have that correct pronunciation, I think we're ready to have this interview. I think so. All right. So uh, without further ado, our interview with Ethley and Ver. I'm going to get this right. Ver. Right. Right? Yes. By the way, Ethley, I really appreciate you correcting me on that in that email. <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten so many variations on my name. It's become a minor sport just to work them all out. But Ethley and Ver, just the easiest way. Well, you know, we I can relate to that. Right. Mazako <laughs> and Mice Tree. Yeah, it, there you go. We run the gambit. True. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So thank you very much for taking the time uh, to talk with us about Andromeda. And so, uh, I guess really the first question that uh, we wanted to get yeah, get going with you with on here is uh, how, how'd you get the, into the into the gig of writing and, and getting involved in the entertainment business? Well, I've always been a writer. It's really the only thing I know how to do. I was a magazine journalist for many years. I had written a few books. Mostly I was a rock and roll journalist, and I had written a few books about rock and roll personalities. And I got into writing television sort of accidentally because a buddy of mine that played blues guitar and rode a Harley said, you're a really good writer. You should think about writing for television. And I said, I would love to do that. I've also considered being queen of France. You just don't get there from here. And he said, well, you can always come and pitch to my show. And I said, you have a show? <laughs> and he he was the executive producer of um, Renegade, hence the Harley. Uh, Renegade with Lorenzo Lamas as a, as a bounty hunter on a motorcycle. And he said, why don't you, you know, come and bring us some ideas. And, and I had some ideas, all of which were based in the rock and roll world I had been existing in. And I also had the added ability to bring aboard someone from the music industry to add a little cachet to it. And I ended up writing a script for Renegade and some original music for it that was very well received and then wrote another one and then one of his staff members quit. And I ended up writing on a television show before I had an agent. I had no, I would go around to agents to say, could you possibly represent me? And they would say, oh, don't be silly, you're a woman, you're almost 40 years old, there's no way you're ever going to get a job. And I would say, but I already have the job, can I interest you in taking 10% of my paycheck? And so, you know, I ended up working in the uh, television industry absolutely by accident. Um, I wrote, what did I write? I wrote a couple of ep episodes of Beastmaster um, on, um, as a freelancer, and they hired me for a season on Earth Final Conflict. And because of that, when they were beginning the show Andromeda, 
I was the first person that Robert Hewitt Wolf hired. He they it was the same syndication companies, Tribune Entertainment right, was right. packaging these shows and because I had now I had this science fiction background due to Beastmaster and Earth Final Conflict, they had Robert interview a number of different writers and he and I bonded over our love of eighties rock and roll, which was uh, something that was supposed to be very prominent in Andromeda, and I will tell you about that. So uh, we met over a, a you know lunch, and you know had just absolutely got along great. I'm a huge admirer uh, of his work and of his intelligence and of his sort of interest in the world. And I got hired, and I was the first writer there. You have uh, also credits as a story editor, besides being a writer. Um, what exactly is involved in being a story editor? And I also, I think I became an associate producer, a co-producer. Mm-hmm. Those are just titles. That That isn't really any different of a job. Even executive producer, co-executive producer, consulting producer, supervising producer, those are all just the writers. And the jobs are pretty much the same unless you're on a, you know, in a shop that's extremely hierarchical. This is just the writing team and you get a different title and a different paycheck based essentially on your seniority. So my my job as a staff writer, a story editor, as a co-producer, essentially the same job. So you're essentially you get to name your own titles. And no, <laughs> no, you have to earn them. They're part of your contract negotiation with the network. Okay, okay. Uh, well, that that kind of covers uh, a little bit on the co-producer thing, then, because you did you, you showed up as co-producer of Lava and Rockets, and exactly yeah. because that's when I'd been there a certain period of time. My contract was up for renewal, and the next renewal cycle, I got bumped to co-producer and. Um, you know, at Zach and Ashley, Zach Stenson, uh, Ashley Miller, they went from uh, staff writers to like story editors and uh, Joe Rankemeyer and Matt Keeney. This was the team, but we got, we moved up in title as our length of time on the show changed. Okay. We still always worked as a team. We work, it's the way an hour long drama is generally written is that. You break story, as it's called. You all get together and decide what the beats of the story, what's going to happen in this episode. You generally do that as a team. The whole gang gets together in the conference room and comes up with what the flow of the story is going to be. And then one writer or one team of writers, because Zach and Ash and Matt and Joe worked as teams, uh, will go away and write the script. And then they will come back to the writer's room. Everybody will read the draft. And they come back to the writer's room and everybody throws around their thoughts and ideas and gives notes. I mean, says this, I love this, um, but the, you should, you know, make more of this, make less of this. That doesn't work. Here's a joke that might work here. Here's an action sequence that might work there. So that's the collaborative aspect. But the beginning to end actual physical writing is done by one person or one team. Okay, great. And so, having worked, you mentioned uh, Earth Final Conflict, Beastmaster. Uh, what was different about working Andromeda? Is there anything there that that you can relate to us? Absolutely, Andromeda was probably the most fun, good vibes, team spirit writing crew I've ever worked with. I miss them desperately. 
exactly. Robert Hewitt Wolf set a great uh, tone. You know, it, it all starts with the executive producer and comes down. There was a time I said to my agent, I, I have only one requirement for any job that you get me. I just would like to uh, write for a show that I would actually watch and work for an executive producer who isn't clinically insane um i didn't work for years after <laughs> i said okay i'll i'll write for shows i won't watch <laughs> but i really don't want to work for a horrible crazy people because it's a very stressful job and these are creative people and they don't always do it gracefully robert hewitt wolf did it so gracefully he is such an even-tempered inclusive democratic man and it was just a pleasure to be part of that team because it really did feel like a team. And um, we had little staff uh, traditions like every Friday we would leave the building and go out to lunch and have a social lunch where we didn't just talk about the show. Um, and getting out of the office for an hour in the middle of the day is actually very rare on a television show. Mm -hmm. Usually it's batten all the hatches and work 24-7 because we're all crazy. But Robert kept the team from being crazy. So we all, we loved the characters that we had created. Um, we created, you know, based on, on Robert's first creation, which was based on Gene Roddenberry's creation, we created a universe. We created a future. We worked with real science, but everything else was out of our own minds. And so... We had a just a, a real, you know, parental love for this this world, and it it was just very special. Uh, you know, Ethley, in the last uh, couple of months, we've been corresponding quite a bit back and forth through email, and some of those you've indicated that uh, your personal life has been, um, let's say, an interesting life. Um, how would you say that that's influenced your writing, uh, just in general, as well as especially with Andromeda? Well, I, my life is quite literally an open book. There's a book called Love Addict, Sex, Romance, and Other Dangerous Drugs, which includes a lot of my life story. And I write a blog called Affection Deficit Disorder. So I am a, a you know, recovered cocaine addict. Um, I spent my 21st birthday in the penitentiary. Um, I, let me see, worked my way through college as a topless dancer. So... I have, yes, a very colorful past, and all of that informs my work, and people, you know, for a long time I tried to keep it all hidden, and then I discovered that Hollywood loves that because it's full of people who went to film school and worked really hard. You know, Matt, um, Matt and Joe uh, were both lawyers when they came to the show, um, and uh, Ashley was, like, in the Navy, and Zach, I think, was like a sociology professor. I mean, these these are very straight, upright, well-educated people. And then here's crazy lady, <laughs> crazy lady, you know, drug dealer. And um, I am very well-educated, but I didn't use it for a really long time. But uh, so, right, I brought a, an understanding of whole different levels of life and areas of life and ways of being that the you know was fresh and new and exciting and brought a lot of color to it so my experience as a drug addict former cocaine addict totally informed becca in those first two years mm -hmm. i think 
they may have lost touch with it over time. But the you know Becca's father was a flash addict, um, and flash is just sort of a futuristic speed essentially. I think of it as the the you know benzedrine the truck drivers take to stay awake for long haul trucking. So that's the futuristic equivalent. But she was, um, you know, someone who was straight edge, totally abstinent from drugs and alcohol because she didn't want to grow up to be her father. And then she got exposed to Flash and, you know, it activated her addiction and she became totally like her father. So we're dealing. And then she has this, you know, con artist brother she could never trust. So it's this dysfunctional family alcoholism, Al-Anon, ACA issues. I mean, all this really sort of current modern issues that I was in the middle of dealing with that we took and moved into a futuristic world. And it, I thought, made Becca a much more interesting, deep and well-rounded character that she comes from not just demons in general, but real personal specific demons that I absolutely relate to. Uh, watching... Um, it makes a lovely light again. I realized that it, it she, Lisa Ryder, I think she won a Gemini Award for that performance, actually. She gave such a great performance of, of like a, you know, a tweaker of someone just starting to tweak out and yeah. then coming down from it. How incredibly ungraceful it is and how unattractive and just how really uh, difficult you become when you mm-hmm. start doing speed. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I ask you right quick, was it, was it you just targeting Becca Valentine as a character to do this kind of this, this whole story arc with, or was that just kind of a general uh, consensus amongst the writers that she was going to get the storyline? Could it have been someone else? But um, I pitched it. Uh, I was. I always had a warm spot in my heart for Becca. I thought of her possibly too much as my alter ego. Um, um, you, you, uh, you had wondered why I only stayed for two years. It's essentially because some of us early folks who got so very invested in the world started not seeing eye with the network, and we were asked to <laughs> to, to take our personalities elsewhere. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I became very identical with the character of Becca. And it was interesting because, you know, work was very identified with the character of uh, Dylan Hunt. And so we had this very human sort of um, competition of... Um, what is that? The cabinet of rivals they talk about in, in Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. We We were... Like fierce colleagues slash competitors. I mean, each of us would, as the characters were competitive, so were we competitive, wanting to come with better and more interesting stories for our characters who were our doppelgangers. It was it was quite wonderful. You know, those episodes, especially the pearls that were his eyes, and uh, it makes a lovely light. Um, both of those, you come away from those seeing that this is a, a real problem that Becca has, and science fiction has a way of um, of touching issues um, in a way that is kind of safe. Um, you can really talk about these things that maybe you may not be able to in uh, in other genres of television. You know, you look at a character like Becca Valentine, and that's that's very real what she was going through 
not everybody is a, a Dylan Hunt. So, I mean, did you were you were you kind of using your experience and going through Becca to kind of talk to some of these people that might be having these problems? Absolutely, and I was really gratified that I heard from a lot of those people too. Uh, we got a lot of communication from people saying that they they were rich and it told their story and they it gave them hope. Uh, it won an award from the one um, of Prism Foundation, and Prism is a, an organization that tries to acknowledge good portrayals of addiction and recovery in media. And the thing that I thought was really special about It Makes a Lovely Light in particular was when um, Tira Anasazi was, you know, challenged by Dylan Hunt, said, what, you knew she was on drugs? And he was going like, yeah, I could, you know, I could smell the adrenaline. I, you know, mm-hmm. hey, Ubermensch guy, you know, I, I, you think I can't see the difference? And Dylan says, why didn't you say anything? And Tear just says very simply, because it was working. <laughs> no one ever acknowledges that people take drugs for a reason. <laughs> they take drugs because they do something for them. I mean, she had, I think I wrote a really cool speech end of that one she's going like it filled something in me that I didn't even know was empty you know it filled a hole that I never knew was there and now I'm going to wear that hole for the rest of my life and have to deal with it and that's something that anyone that is recovering from a drug or alcohol addiction can relate to and that you don't usually hear in any you know uh, popular culture much less science fiction television yeah, and that is one of the things that we appreciated about those that mm-hmm. we talked about on air. Although I will say, Ryan, yeah. you were way off on meth being the uh, the reason. Well, the I, reason it got wrote. You know, it could be. It could have been <laughs> meth, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was. It was sort of pre meth. Actually, we're talking two thousand two thousand one. So this was. Yeah, this was based on my my experience as a coke fiend. And but the general analog was a little more like I said, it's like a long distance truck truckers popping uh, Dexies and Bennies. Yeah, yeah. And forgive me for name dropping, but when we talked to Lisa Ryder, she mentioned that they were some of her favorite uh, episodes to to perform in too, as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. I thought she just rocked them. I thought she did a terrific mm-hmm. job with both of those. Watching these shows, it re- I was really. Uh, in- all over again with what a terrific actress she is and what great range she had and what great depth she had. I think she was really under under acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah, I would tend to agree mm-hmm. with that. I think we both would. Well, let's, let's switch gears a little bit from away from Becca and uh, look at some of the other characters that you've written for. We have uh, the episode A Rose in the Ashes, uh, Starcrossed, Home Fires that we kind of look to. Um this was your chance to to deal with some of the other characters and flesh some of them out. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what appealed to you about writing for, say, Rami or Dylan? Or uh, in Rose in the Ashes, you wrote for Jessa and Kaylee. Um, right, who were just made up as, as guest actors. Well, Rose in the Ashes was one of the first... Some of these were really early. They weren't necessarily... Sh- even shot in the order they were written but as i'm watching some of these i think oh that look that's so obviously a really early episode like rose in the ashes was full of all kinds of exposition um about why the um 
you know, what what the backstory of the the system's Commonwealth was, and what the Dylan's backstory is, and we kept reminding people that how he got where he was, and you know, so that was just a lot of. Um, you know, explaining how there are the three Ramis. One of the interesting things about for Rami, and I don't know how it um, really sold. I don't know if there was enough time in the episodes I was able to sit and watch again to really get that over to people. But each of the three mm, faces Rami, as it were, was a little different. Um, Rami as the ship, as the persona of ship itself is is this strong warship it's you know if she's the multiple personality this is like guy rami this is like macho fighter rami and then her um holograph is uh, sort of like the maternal right it's, it's almost like a mother a father and a daughter so the ship is like this uh, omnipotent big daddy warship and the hologram sort of can be anywhere at all times and takes care of things uh, and is very maternal and the physical body the you know the uh, android Rami is very new and not used to having physicality and all the things that come with physicality so I think of her as being more childlike and she will um, she's the one that in love in Starcrossed, um, it's the physical body that falls in love, and the other avenue, the other manifestations of Rami are going like, "Are you crazy? <laughs> That's like we don't do that." Right. But but I do. I mean, each of the three Ramis was a little different, a different part of the intelligence that was Rami because you know Rami contains millions rami is that's that's a massive intelligence that warship yeah i think that's one of the things that kind of ryan and i had kind of missed on mm-hmm. in our discussions that actually clears things up a lot that analogy of it because yeah. uh if those that listen to the show i mean we we talk about this almost every single week um you know what, what exactly is rami and all these different personalities that she has and how do they all fit together uh yeah so that that helps a lot yeah rami is you know, I mean, that's Andromeda. And one part, by the way, we didn't know what the nickname for Andromeda, the ship, was going to be. Rami just kind of happened as we were in the writer's room and discussing all of this. We didn't know if it was going to be um, Rami or um, Andra uh, or um, Andy or we just, but it just became Rami once it was inhabited by Lexa. And we started, you know, knowing her and her way of being. It's just, it's just Rami and it just really couldn't be anything else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then there, Rami was also going to have more of the robot avatars, which was a, a wonderful touching moment that I don't think we even ever got to keep in the pilot that made everybody that I know fall in love with Robert's writing in this, in the first uh, pilot episode that he wrote, he had a moment where one of these uh, robot avatars um, got down on its knees and closed the eyes of a dead uh, crewman. Um, And it was just so touching, this sort of high tech, high touch moment of showing the humanity of the show as well as the technology of the show at once. And it was just this beautiful moment written but they just didn't have a good they, we didn't have the effects we didn't have the costumes to make a good robot avatar and so it looked so very clunky in reality we started 
getting rid of all those robot avatars, but they were going to be another manifestation of Rami that was just almost like um, the autonomous nervous system. I mean, whenever the, the, the robots have a personality or anything, they were just, uh, if the ship was a body, they were her nanobots just running around and taking care of stuff, but they never really had. That was one of the ones that got away. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, I'd like to ask, too, about Dylan. Uh, because the perception is that, okay, obviously we have the the overt things, you know, Dylan's a man out of time, um, trying to reestablish the Commonwealth. Uh, the backstory for that, that we get to see in a couple of episodes, particularly the one that you wrote uh, in Home Fires, he has that connection to the past uh, of being, or at least was going to start a family. He was going to be a family man. But then in later shows, we kind of have this switch over to I, I haven't watched it all the way through but I kind of draw the connection with Kirk you know uh, and and I'm just wondering was that uh, was that on purpose was that something that Robert Hewitt Wolf wanted to do was transition him from a kind of a homebody type over to uh, you know woman in every port or, or was that uh, was that just that kind of by accident a, that was a network that was the whole network the the, well, the um, friction between the original writing staff and the network you can actually see in the costuming of many of the women too when transgemini changes from this cute little purple girl in a leotard with a tail to this you know like sex goddess in metal and um, and Rami gets this little you know Asian hooker wig and Becca starts getting a makeover. They just wanted to sex up the show, basically. They okay. just wanted to make the show sexier. And that's that's fine. That's all superficial. And if you want to make Dylan Hunt a little more macho and studly, and I'm sure that Kevin Sorbo himself was perfectly on board with all of that, that is fine. That's not an issue. That's television. Where I thought that they really, that it really became a real difference in philosophy and worldview and world building is that the Dylan Hunt that we envisioned is was he was the um he, he was the Heinlein, you know, man in extraordinary circumstances that succeeds by dint of his own intellect and um, bravery and resource our our Dylan was was the true Democrat, right? He was the the Greek myth, not the Persian myth. He was he was Alexander the Great. He's someone by dint of his own abilities is able to uh, su- succeed, to win, to to um, you know rise to the top of the heap. It was a very Western democratic type of Dylan, where, where the network wanted to go with it over. Time was more of the he was the chosen one. He okay. he succeeded by dint of the fact that fate had selected him, and therefore he was always going to win because the gods were in his favor. Mm. So it was really a huge that's a huge schism in worldview between the democratic, you know, resourceful man and the mystical, you know. Um, Eastern, you know, theocratic chosen by God to lead. And that, you know, that's one of the reasons that the writing staff of the show changed. (laughs) So they had the chance to get him away from that Herculean (laughs) uh, type of persona 
they elected not to go, not not to get him away from Hercules, huh? Um, yeah, we just we always saw Dylan as you know the the man with the plan. Yeah, he always could outthink his opponents. It wasn't that the fates had chosen him for something special. He was just fast on his feet and smart and strong and resourceful and brave. And that then that's why he was the captain, not because the gods had chosen him to lead. Yeah. yeah. And I know you can't believe everything that you read on the internet but i did uh i remember reading a story indicating that even uh kevin sorbo himself was not happy with the decision to uh essentially deify uh captain hunt i'm i'm glad to hear that because yeah i think kevin was certainly on board with the idea of you know a strong smart guy that succeeds by his own capability you know, I mean, that's Kevin. We all we would joke about Kevin that if if he hadn't if Hollywood hadn't found him, he would have had a very nice life as the basketball coach um, at a small Midwestern university. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was like he's a man, very much a a physical guy, uh, an active guy, a guy that you know takes care of his own stuff, and he can relate to the original Dylan. He's a real salt of the earth kind of guy. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned a couple of times there uh, in, in a few of the characters, uh, things that you, you feel like got away, ones that got away. Uh, are there any other characters or anything that ideas that you might have had that got passed over that we might have liked to have seen um, in Andromeda? Well, there were some things that we love that budgets just didn't allow when um, we, we all of us individually saw Guardians of the Galaxy and then tweeted about it. We were going like, bam, that's the Andromeda movie we would have made if we had the money um, and we're particularly peeved about the whole 70s musical soundtrack we got such mileage out of because when we started Andromeda as I mentioned we bonded over our love of 80s music okay. and uh, it was full of there was a conceit and it's barely alluded to um, I think in Ties That Blind that in one of her salvage runs Becca scored this huge bunker of antique, really antique <laughs> uh, CDs, compact discs of 80s rock and roll. Yes. And so the Eureka Maru was, all, she was always playing, and she liked, like, the Pogues, and she liked, I mean, she just, she just was always playing, and, um, like, Tear on Asazi's uh, theme was going to be Behind Blue Eyes from The Who, that you would always <laughs> hear that whenever you saw him working out, and there was, um, and that the first season uh, theme song was done by Alex Lifeson of Rush because Robert was a big Rush fan. And he said, oh, if I, you know, my best scenario have Rush do our theme song. And because I had come out of the music industry, I can probably make that happen. <laughs> I made a few calls and with Alex Lifeson to record this wonderful theme. They ditched after the end of the first season because it was too edgy. Um, so you can see, just like, the, I would say, don't play this because I'm never going to get by Tribune again, but Tribune isn't making any more television. So I can I can disagree with their opinions as much as I want. Um, they thought the music was too edgy, and they changed it into something much more mundane by the second season. Yeah, well, I, uh, I, I will say, as as two watchers of the show that are, you know, just two guys out there in middle America – 
I like the I like the season one yeah. title. I thought it was great. Right when they uh, switched over to the the new um, to the new music for uh, season two, we actually had a, a little bit of <laughs> making fun of that transition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you're on my side. Yeah, we oh, really, mm-hmm. we love that music. It was just so, and you know, it was all with overdub guitars. I mean, I know it sounds like bagpipes and goodness knows what else, but it's just Alex Lifeson overdubbing guitars himself in the studio again and again and again. It's a really cool bit of music. And also you can see from the, from what's called, it's, they call it the saga which is that little bit of narration before the show starts that explains a little mm-hmm. bit about what you're about to see mm-hmm. um the opening uh, narration from the first season says the uh, systems come the greatest civilization that ever lived has fallen and now it's, we're in the dark ages and that's the concept by the second season they're saying you know the universe is a dangerous place and this small band of heroes is going to go out we it was never intended that this is going to be a band of heroes. These were, you know, other than Dylan, the, these were a bunch of, you know, robber con men and thieves, and, you know, they were um, marginal. They they were marginal people, and they were always trying to get over on each other and on Dylan, and you never knew who to trust Dad, weren't sure you could trust here on Asazi. This whole race was all about, you know, self-preservation. And um, that they just, it's just, no, let's have them all work together. It's just, no. Yeah, I was going to. Work on the other way. I was going to ask about that. Was was that more of just a, a, a studio philosophy that developed? Or was that because there was Gene Roddenberry's name on the front? And, and Gene Roddenberry was known for, you know, presenting the best of humanity. I don't think that um, Gene would have liked having everybody um, not trusting everybody else because I've seen other stuff that he's developed, like Earth Final Conflict was all was full of you don't know who you can trust or what their real agenda is, and he wrote a lot more of Earth Final Conflict than he did of Andromeda. So I I don't think that Gene would have objected to the fact uh, Robert worked for. Uh, Gene on um, Deep Space Nine, and Deep Space Nine was full of internal uh, backstabbing and you know personal agendas at uh, with other people's personal agendas. So this, I think that Gene would have approved of the people on the uh, Eureka Maru having their own agendas, and it made for really interesting uh, story writing. Because sometimes I would think, what, you know, what do I want the story of this episode to be? And I would start out with, okay, can I get Becca and Tear to gun to one another's heads? Or how can I get Becca and Dylan to be in a face-off, you know, to the death? I mean, how, you know, how can we oppose these different characters? Because drama, of course, comes from conflict. So as heightened as you can make the conflict... Um, then I think that that's a much more interesting drama than only having it conflicting with some external villain who is, after all, going to change every week. So you're not going to have that same emotion invested. And also, you're always going to assume that your regular characters are going to win. <laughs> but if you have a fight to the death between Becca and Tyr, you don't know who's going to win. So it, to me, it becomes much more interesting. 
So other things that you might not have noticed in the episodes of some of the stuff, um, some of them had the nod to the 80s rock and roll. Um, the um, We created an entire religion that you only mm-hmm. got to see bits and pieces, but it was wonderfully complex and had an entire theology and we pieced it together from Buddhism and Zoroastrianism and uh, and um, it was just you know and sort of new new age yoga stuff we had a lot of fun with that the um, all the drifts when I got a chance to name it it was named after a woman inventor um, like uh, there was Meitner Drift is named and there was Meitner Drift and Rolick Drift and on drift and all these the drifts were all named after women inventors because my first book was um mothers of invent the history of women inventors so um that was just a little nod that probably um went out entirely one of the other things that didn't necessarily show up as much as we had intended it to from early on was that uh trance would mangle language in a way that made it more expressive than it would have been otherwise. And so when uh, we have in Pearls that were his eyes, uh, Dylan comes um, into command and Trent says, we're supposed to stand at pretension. That Robert <laughs> thought that was a perfect you know, encapsulation of both her character and what she's supposed to do, but it, it confused the network. So. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, we... they, were, they were confused. Um, and we... Um, we had an episode that was going to show uh, Harper's backstory on Earth that had become a slave colony to the Nietzscheans, which was really interesting stuff. But I don't think that ever really happened, which was kind of a shame. And a, um, one episode that very few people have gotten a chance to see is Starcrossed, because one of the plot points in Starcrossed is the rebels are going to ram a, a spaceship into the tall towers of a city. And that aired, oh. first aired in August of 2001. Ooh. And then before it was due to re-air, September 11th of 2001 happened. And so it was pulled from the schedule and didn't re-air again for like 10 years or something. Wow. Interesting timing there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um and it, I, I had no, I had no pre knowledge. <laughs> right, right, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> just, just saying, unfortunate, unfortunate timing. Any other details there? Well, in Rose in the Ashes, there were all those little drones coming in, doing that right. attack from mm-hmm. outside that they didn't know who they were being attacked by. Yeah, there were, there were no little drones back then. We made those up and built them out, out of toy parts and stuff like that. There, there were no such thing as drones, but we really sort of. Um, you know, precogged them. <laughs> uh, little foreshadowing there. Yeah, a little foreshadowing. Um, and that was meant to be, again, in, in sort of sexing up the, the series, um, Lexa was supposed to be doing the, you know, Princess Leia in captivity kind of, you know, gold metal bikini thing in her cage. But it was shot in Canada, and she was freezing. <laughs> so she grabbed a pashmina of, of you know, wool wrap, and kept it around her the whole time. And the network was so peeved when they saw the dailies. <laughs> it's just like, where's the metal bikini? Oh, man. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes the practicalities of things just get in the way, especially when you're shooting in Vancouver and you're down in L.A. 
we would fly up as much as possible to be on set, but you can only do so much. And um, yeah, in Rose in the Ashes, Zach's one another. It's another outside character that was supposed to have an interesting backstory. Is the big monstrous furry mm. creature Zax, mm. who sacrifices his life for our cause, was supposed to have a whole backstory about how he's just schizophrenic and he didn't really, you know, his violence could have been easily controlled with the medicine available in the Commonwealth, but that medicine's not available anymore, and this is why it's so important for Dylan to put the common wealth together i mean we really did have a cause when we started um but the costume on Zach's put it looked like um as i think i said at the time my aunt esther's old mink coat um, <laughs> it, it was just not good and so we had to just really cut him out of it and things like that happen a lot and you just you just never realize why um and you know that uh, The Ties That Blind was the first thing for television ever written by Zach Stentz and uh, Ashley Miller, who have now become huge genre movie writers. So I did not know that. I feel like I, I, helped, I helped guide them. I helped guide them into uh, this wacky career that they've done so well at, even more than me. <laughs> No, absolutely. Oh. It's it's interesting some of these details that you're bringing out because for the two of us, you know, that sit down in an evening and discuss an episode, we have, uh, without going on the internet and just delving into whatever is out there, you know, it's just you see what's on screen and what gets edited into each individual episode. You see it, and then you're left just wondering, you know, what was the thinking behind that, or what more could they have done with it? And it's interesting that you you know you telling us this lets us know that you know you as writers were were putting that extra effort into it it's just it's unfortunate that the the budget didn't allow for it yeah i think of something like uh, andromeda is you're seeing the tip of the iceberg but there is this enormous amount of world building that had to go on underneath it that you don't get to see and we just have to hope that the tip of the iceberg, which is what, you know, the genre fans would call canon, that it's uh, sufficient to be able to sketch out for everybody what that other 90% is. Um, because we just try to hint at it, and we were one of the first shows that actually had a website where you could go and learn more about the world. But, um, yes, some of it is just like you're just stuck with canon. You're just stuck with what made it onto the screen because – that's you can't you can't do a whole director's notes on every episode of television. Um, oh, you know that um, Tears Chainmail. That was that was my idea. We were doing all the costuming, and I said, and of course uh, Keith Hamilton Cobb was just like this, the biggest, hugest, hunkiest, big slab of you know carved obsidian you've ever seen. And I said, okay, you know what would really be sexy on that this warrior guy chain mail so it's, so it's your fault then it's my fault <laughs> and we found someone from like the renaissance fair who actually knew how to make chain mail and she made it by hand and keith cobb hated it because it was canada and it was cold oh i can imagine wow <laughs> and so when by by the i think by the end of the second season he was wearing anything other than the chain mail but I really like the chain mail. Um, 
It, it looks like we sort of invented iPads when I go back to some of the earlier episodes and I look at what we called flexies. Yeah. We called them flexies. We came up with them and they were these little, you know, little tablet things that you got all this information on. I'm looking, I'm going, like, oh, look, we, we invented iPads. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And y'all had them in there too, where they were actually flexible too. Which, right, they were is, meant to. Yeah, they were called flexies because they were in fact flexible. Yeah, which is so, still to come, but I think it's yeah. it's around the corner actually. The uh, I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, uh, we're probably not going to get hoverboards, but well, at least we'll get flexies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, we just got them. This well, it's sort of like it's a it's a hover segue. Yeah, it's not. It's uh, not Japanese good enough. inventor came up with a little segue <laughs> board that you can stick in your backpack and then wheel yourself around on so it doesn't quite hover but it's really darn close really darn close yeah yeah you you had mentioned it a couple of times before and and i just have you go ahead and and go into it just a little bit you left after two seasons uh and, and you mentioned ultimately it was it was the change up in in the philosophy of the writing that led to that right it wasn't like i got up and quit it was like my contract wasn't renewed after the second season um robert and the uh, network, the, the you know the syndication entity, the studio, whatever you want to call them, the the people who wrote the checks, Robert and the people who wrote the checks, just started getting more and more into creative disputes. And this happens, by the way, on every show. I have long said that my ideal job is to create a show and then get fired on the first day, so that I never have to have any of these fights. Because the job of running a television show is basically as one showrunner friend of mine calls it, like being president of a small country at war. And it, it is constantly um, managing budgets, managing actors who, although they appear to be strong and brave and resourceful and everything on screen, are generally fearful, vain, narcissistic, shallow, not all. Lisa Ryder, for instance, lovely lady, many actors, um, are just mostly terrified and constantly want um, their characters to um, look make them look better. They and so if three people in the room each want to be three actors in a scene, each want to be the smartest, each want to be the hero all the time. You can imagine that you're constantly. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a struggle. It's a constant struggle. Everyone. Um, it's, it's just a fight and I don't, I don't really mean to besmirch the network or actors or anything. It's just, that's just human nature. You're going to have the same problem in any corporation trying to create anything. You're just, you're constantly fighting against the realities of budget, the realities of schedule, the realities of, you know, the physical temperature and people's stamina and union rules. I mean, it's just a constant fight and it's hard. And once um, the people who are writing the paychecks get tired of fighting, they just want to change something. You'll see that writing staffs on television shows change a lot because it's a lot easier to change the writers than it is to change the actors because people don't see the writers. Yeah. So you can make that change and you can feel like, okay, at least I've done something that is going to maybe help get us out of this stuck position or increase our ratings or make our star happier or get me out of trouble with my boss or whatever the decisions are made. Writers get changed up a lot. So the fact that the, you know, the founding writing staff was there for two full seasons actually speaks very well 
for the integrity of the staff and the show. Yeah, and, and I, uh, yeah, and after a while, it, it just had to change up. Yeah, and and I I would just like to say your efforts. Uh, we certainly do appreciate uh, having seen it there in the in the first two seasons. But you don't have to convince us about working together. You should see some of the fights that Ryan and I have in oh, yeah. production. <laughs> so. It's pretty ugly. <laughs> Could you tell us about uh, some of the other things that you uh, have gone on to do? Maybe what you're uh, keeping busy with right now? Uh, well, the last book I wrote, Love Addict, Sex, Romance, and Other Dangerous Drugs, which came out in 2012, end of 2011, 2012, um, that is uh, you know, talking about an area of addiction and recovery that really hadn't been spoken about very much until that time, sex and love addiction. And it is now sort of exploded into the public awareness. So I get asked to do a lot in the way of public speaking and education on that topic. I speak to uh, addiction counselors. I speak to therapists and counselors. And um, I do a lot of I write for Huffington Post and people like that on a lot of these issues. So that that's interesting and keeps me busy. And then I've got, you know, a couple of feature films that are in, in development, as we say, um, but after Andromeda, what else did I work on after Andromeda? Um, uh, let me see. I went. I did. Hmm, I did other. Show, I did the Jane Doe series. I did a bunch of TV movies for Sci Fi Channel, which was just a ton of fun because they were so wacky. Um, I did the Jane Doe mystery series. Let me see. I wrote uh, CSI. Uh, but that was just as a freelancer. CSI, Strong Medicine. Um, the, oh, and I wrote an Andromeda novel. I wrote The Broken Places, uh, which was really me getting to explore the character of Becca Valentine more thoroughly and look more into her family dynamics and talk more, much more about the relationship between her and her brother, which I just thought was a really fun, interesting relationship, and I love the chemistry that the two actors had had. Um, as Cameron Datto played her brother, and the Datto boys were big soap opera stars in Australia, and this was uh, Cameron first trying to come over and make it in the U.S., and I thought that the two of them had a wonderful chemistry to the point that I even hinted at the possibility they might not be blood-related, just so that something could come out of it. Um <laughs> And um, I had a, a, a lot of fun writing that because it let me delve into that, you know, the 90% of the iceberg below the surface. Sadly, by that time, the new staff had taken the show's canon off into other directions. And so what I wrote about what was real and true in, in the universe was beginning to diverge from what was real and true in the universe on television. But that's, you know, that's what happens when you that, that that's what happens in all of these shows you get these different timelines and uh so i did the broken places did i do another book i just write you know i write people say what you know what kind of writing do i like best and i go like the one where they pay me <laughs> I, just, like, I i i just write you know i like uh i like i always enjoy journalism but uh journalism is no longer some it's no longer a career it's just you know it's a hobby <laughs> it's yeah. great but it's a hobby um i got pretty involved with the writers guild i got pretty involved in the strike in 2008 2009 um 
I now live part of the time in the U.S. Virgin Islands on the island of St. Croix, where I'm involved in reef preservation and marine life research, which is of a real interest to me. And um, yeah, Andromeda was like, man, it was 15 years ago. It's a really, it's a while. Yeah, you don't think about it. It's, it's hard to think that it's it's been that long now. So, well, Ethley, we really appreciate all the time that you've uh, given us here, almost an hour now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, like I said, we really appreciate the, the efforts and the work that you put into at least the first two seasons of Andromeda and giving it such a solid foundation, a solid base uh, for us to talk about here on our, our podcast. I love that you do it. Thank you so much for your real, you know, intelligent exploration of uh, extended work of fiction. It's a, it's very flattering to us and very interesting for me as a listener, too. Wow. High praise indeed. It, absolutely. Thank it you is. very much. All right. So what a great interview we had with Ethley Vare. That was fantastic. Yes, it was. And, uh, you know, the, I... A lot of that stuff that we got to talk about after the interview concluded, boy, we can't wait to bring to you guys mm-hmm. that are listening. Uh, some of the insights that she was able to give us off the off the rec- the main re- interview there. Right. If you can believe that, that we got even more than what we gave you already. That's so, right. So, uh, so look forward to that as, as we dole it out, uh, as we get to some specific uh, episodes that are uh, up and coming. And then, uh, you know, maybe we'll have her on the show again. I hope so. I hope so too. That was a blast. It was. It, it's it's fun to uh, listen to someone else uh, talk about Andromeda. That is that is about as excited about the show as we are. Yes. Yeah. And it's obvious. You can tell they she put a lot of effort in, mm-hmm. into that show, and it and it you know for lack of a better term, it shows. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's still part of her. Yep. Absolutely. All right, Ryan. Well, that'll conclude this special edition of. Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda Series podcast. Yes, it will. Uh, hey, listeners, let us know what you thought of this interview or any other episode that we have done or any episode that we will do. Ethan, how can they get a hold of us? They can send us an email at drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Facebook using the handle at AndromedaPod on both of those locations. We're on Podbean, www.andromedaseries.podbean.com. And we're on iTunes, and you can listen to us there. If you do so, please subscribe and give us a review if you like what you hear there on the uh, the iTunes and Drive Back the Night. Big, big, huge thank you once again to Ethley and Ver for, for, uh, for Skyping in and sitting down and talking with us. Um, just a blast. Such an honor to have her on. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think of the interviews we've done so far. I, and I, and I have enjoyed interviewing everyone so far that mm-hmm. we've had on these specials, but the, this one was, I think one of them, I got a lot more out of it and a lot of interesting tidbits that I wasn't expecting. Right. Well, she raised the bar. Yes, she did. <laughs> and we invite you to come back and join us again next week as we continue back on our regular schedule and uh, we're going to pick up with Una Salas Victus. <laughs>